All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us for COVID-19 in, in the context of pandemic history and recovery, co-hosted by the York County History Center and the York County Economic Alliance. My name is Silas Chamberlain. I'm Vice President of Economic Development at the York County Economic Alliance. I wanna mention at the onset of the webinar that we are recording via Zoom. Uh, we're live streamed via YouTube and Facebook. And this webinar will also be rebroadcast by PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Uh, so if you uh, have a question or uh, make comments, just recall that it's all recorded for posterity. Remember, we are historians, so we like to archive this stuff. Uh, with that, now it's my pleasure to introduce our co-host, Joan Mummert, President and CEO of the York County History Center for some introductory remarks. Thank you, Silas. We are pleased to have you join us for a timely conversation about ways in which we can review our current response to and recovery from COVID-19 using a historical perspective. This is one of the many ways both the History Center and the YCEA have pivoted our programming to discuss critical issues and reach broad audiences even during these trying times. We're grateful to have Dr. Scott Knowles with us today. Dr. Knowles is the chair of the history department at Drexel University. He is also author of Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America, and editor of Imagining Philadelphia, Edmund Bacon and the Future of the City, and has published both leading in both leading scholarly journals and the New York Times. Dr. Knowles will begin with a brief overview of pandemics in historical perspective, then lead a facilitated discussion with three other panelists. The panelists joining him today are Dr. Adam Bentz, Assistant Director of the Library and Archives with the York County History Center. And you'll note that he's sitting in the Agricultural and Industrial Museum um, entryway. Um, Dr. Benz holds a PhD in American History from Lehigh University. Also with us today is Craig Walt, Community Health Services Supervisor, the City of York Health Bureau. Craig holds a Master's in Public Health from Temple University. And of course, Dr. Silas Chamberlain, Vice President for Economic Development with the York County Economic Alliance. Dr. Chamberlain holds a PhD in environmental history from Lehigh University. As Silas said, this will be an opportunity to ask, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. If you have any during the conversation, please enter them through the question and answer or chat feature at the bottom of your screen. We will reserve time at the end of the discussion to answer the compiled audience questions. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Scott Knowles. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for that uh, introduction, Joan. I really appreciate uh, being invited to um, the COVID calls. If you want to check those out uh, any day, Monday through Friday, 5 p.m., just look for my, uh, look for the Scott Knowles YouTube channel or you can find them uh, archived as podcasts on soundcloud.com, and that's uh, easy to find, soundcloud.com, and that has a COVID calls podcast. I wanted to just start my part of the discussion today. We have a great um, local story to tell, but I want to start with a broader story and, and give some numbers as of today, there are 4,152,670 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,910,738 cases on Friday. 1,339,819 of those are in the United States, and that's up from 1,273,887 Friday. There are now a total of 79,894 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, and that's up from 76,475 reported on Friday, 
784 of those cases are in York County with 13 of those deaths coming from York County. And as a way to uh, bridge across those startling numbers, I've also uh, found it very important to talk about humanity in this time. And um, with the collaboration of my hosts, they made a suggestion um, about a uh, obituary, a story of a, a local family that's been affected by this disaster. So I'm just going to read part of an obituary that came from the York County, uh, from the York Daily Record. This was published on April 15th, and the headline is York County Couple Dies of COVID-19 Complications Three Days Apart. I won't read all of it, but I will read part of it. Rebecca Lender died on April 4th. Bradley Lender died three days later. Both of them they're gone, just like that. Both of my parents are gone, their daughter Miranda Lender wrote on Facebook. Becky was 61, Brad 60. They would have been married 34 years this month. But they weren't statistics. They were living, loving human beings, as evidenced by their daughter's tribute to their lives. Brad taught his daughter how to use power tools and to drive like Dale Earnhardt, screened Star Wars for her when she was five and taught her how to play golf. He taught her to chase her dreams and earn her degree from the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design. He once sat through a Hallmark movie with his daughter just to catch a glimpse of Miranda's first TV commercial. They lived in Lewisbury in Northern York County in a small rancher on Fishing Creek Road. Becky was a member of the class in 1977 of Cumberland Valley High School where she twirled a rifle in the van, according to her obituary. She was crafty and loved to make things with her hands found great joy in planning parties and events and made it her personal mission to crochet a baby blanket for every single baby welcomed into the world by her numerous friends and family, her obituary read. Becky worked at the New Cumberland Army Depot, assisting with new sustainable ways to reuse our resources, according to her obituary. Brad went to East Pennsboro High School, also graduating in 1977. He was an athlete, a member of the football, baseball, and swim teams. He was a jack of all trades that loved to build things and DIY, the skills of which he used to remodel his family's home throughout the years himself, his obituary stated. Throughout his life, he tackled many hobbies and passions. In his younger years, he raced stock cars on local dirt tracks. His black car numbered with a yellow four and emblazoned with the names of his wife and daughter. He built and flew and crashed model airplanes, raced RC cars, and played numerous rounds of golf and charity tournaments. In his later years, he began homebrewing his own beer, a pursuit he took seriously and found great joy and pride in crafting a beer from scratch and sharing his final product with friends and family. When he wasn't brewing, he was on his motorcycle, enjoying the open road and discovering barbecue restaurants or visiting his friends at the local American Legion and VFW, according to his obituary. Two lives, Rebecca Lender and Bradley Lender lost COVID-19 from the York County community, and I wanted to start uh, my brief part of the comments today in that way, because one of the lessons that we learn from pandemics historically is that the numbers can be absolutely overwhelming. And the numbers have a numbing effect. It is, in fact, part of our own human psychology. The way we cope with disaster, in part, is to, um, in a sense, distance ourselves, try to distance ourselves when the numbers become too overwhelming. But I think the numbers that we're seeing now in the United States do run the risk of forcing that impact on us. And so in the midst of this, one thing that we find is quite valuable historically is to stop and remember those lives and memorialize and not to wait until the disaster reaches some ending point or some moment when we all agree on what it's meant to take stock on who we've lost. And so I did want to I did want to start in that way. I want to, if possible, I'm going to show a couple of slides now just to share with you a couple of the questions that I ask when I think about the, the use of history in a disaster. And I'm just going to start with this. I'm going to actually take you, let me just show you these three these three brief points. And maybe these will be some, some things, some thinking that we might return to in our conversation as we go through today with our with local historians um, who are gonna be translating some of these lessons into the York County experience. So when we are asked about the use of history in disaster and pandemic, we're often asked 
well, are there some lessons there that we can use? Is there something from that history that we can bring to the present? And I believe that there are. I'm going to say just a couple words here in a minute about um, one historical case that might be useful to us to think with. Another point that's often made is about the use of history um, as a tool, as a storehouse. And that doesn't happen on its own. That happens because we build museums and we build archives and we staff history departments and we read history books. We have to build the archive. It's not something that just happens. It has to be built and tended. And so what we know about the past is because we've intentionally preserved it in most cases. And that calls upon us to take some actions right now. And I want to, maybe it's something we'll even talk about in our discussion today. What can people be doing right now in these very strange and scary times that we're living in to help build a historical record so that people in the future can learn something about what we're going through. And that leads to the, the third point that I would make is that we don't just learn concrete lessons from the past, translate them to the present, and then put them in place as policy documents, but the past also offers us a reservoir of understanding. The emotions, the losses, the triumphs, the concerns that people feel in the midst of disaster, in the midst of pandemic, we can find some utility and solace there too. Those are three points I wanted to share at the beginning. And let me just take you into a case that I think um, it's one that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and, and teaching. I teach at Drexel University in Philadelphia, as was said. So history of Philadelphia is, is always close to uh, my set of interests and Pennsylvania history more generally as well. In 1793, in the summer and into the fall of that year, a mosquito-borne yellow fever outbreak hit Philadelphia. And in the end, about... Uh, 10%, they believe, of the population of Philadelphia was killed in this yellow fever epidemic. So 5,000 people out of a city of 50,000. It was North America's leading city at that time. It was the center of the arts. It was the center of politics. It was actually the nation's capital, you may know, in the last 10 years of the 18th century. And so to have an epidemic strike America's first city at this time was absolutely devastating. But it wasn't just that the disease itself was devastating. They had seen plagues and they had seen uh, outbreaks in Philadelphia before. But it was the inability of the leadership of the city to explain what was happening or to bring it under control quickly. This caused um, a sort of disaster connected to the disaster. You had the pandemic, but you also had the problem of making sense of what was going on. Doctors and Philadelphia had the leading doctors in America at that time, including Benjamin Rush, were disputing with each other uh, vociferously about what this uh, epidemic was, what was causing it, what the correct treatments would be. It also caused um, strife along racial lines, along ethnic lines in the city. And ultimately, the Congress that was meeting, United States Congress, who was meeting in Philadelphia at that time, and the President of the United States, who was there, as well, all had to abandon the city at the height of the outbreak in the fall. This shows you where the uh, epidemic was clustered. In Philadelphia, the population density at that time was located along the Delaware River. Most of the cases were uh, clustered there along the river. In it made sense, we think of it now, because um, the mosquitoes that came, yes. Uh, I think you might need to share your screen. I'm not sure that everybody is viewing oh, it. Oh, sorry here. about that. It showed me that I was. There we go. Well, the good news is you haven't missed anything yet. Uh, <laughs> so this was the first image I was showing. Uh, just the, and then now this is the most, this is the important one I wanted to transition to, to talk about the yellow fever deaths. And so let's just bring this into the, thank you for the, with water. Now they didn't exactly know what the connection to water was um, at that time. We would come to know later, a hundred years later, that it's connected to mosquito as a disease vector. Um, but, you know, disputing of doctors and the problems of the uh, physical conditions of the city, 
as well as the diversity of the city and the political strife that it triggered, were all very much part of understanding what this epidemic was. So the larger point I wanna make here is that if we're trying to draw a lesson from the yellow fever outbreak as history, um, it's not just one event. It's a number of interrelated events. Part of it has to do with the mosquito-borne disease itself and people getting sick, but part of it also has to do with dispute among the figures of authority in Philadelphia at that time. And part of it as well had to do with the reality that those who were hardest hit in Philadelphia ultimately were those who couldn't leave. They were the people, the working class people, um, immigrants, African-Americans, people who were working on the docks, people who were tending to the sick, tending to the dead. They were the ones who ultimately bore the heaviest weight of this disaster. And I think that's an important lesson that we bring forward to the present, but it's not something that gives us a sort of clear set of instructions. What do we do with that in terms of developing policies for maybe the 1918 pandemic or the pandemic that we're living with now? I don't think history always tees up lessons for us that easily, but it does show us patterns. And it shows us patterns that often disasters punch down. They affect the vulnerable, among us more heavily than others. And disasters create a sort of um, a fog, uh, a lack of clarity in which we get political disputes. And if there are political fractures in our midst in that moment, they will come out in a disaster. The other point I was uh, making at the beginning there, disaster as a, um, maybe a place to draw lessons from, but disaster also as a storehouse of the human experience. I want to just share this with you briefly, a poem written, just a part of it, 1793 by the, the poet Philip Freneau, trying to capture what was going on in Philadelphia in those very scary months in the fall of 1793. And here he is writing about pestilence in a year of yellow fever and describing the kind of a scene that he was witnessing in Philadelphia and asking, and here he brings forward this notion of people in power disputing amongst themselves as to what was happening, doctors raving and disputing, death's pale army still recruiting. This is a poem I've come back to many times, the same that you might go back to Daniel Defoe's um, Journal of a Plague Year if you're interested in the history of London book he wrote about the 1666 plague uh, that struck London. And there's so many examples of literature, of art, of poetry that take us into, and of works of history too, that take us into these moments in which maybe we don't find some instructions in this poem about um, what to do about COVID-19, but we can find some resonance across time. People have struggled like this before. People have found that their leadership just falls into dispute in moments like this. And that the scientific leaders, even in 1793, the scientific leaders in the young nation of the United States, um, that there were disputes among them as well. And yet at the same time, people did find, as they are now, that human beings are pro-social in disaster as well. That they do tend to reach out and try to help one another first. Uh, and so I think that's another important lesson that we can draw forward. And we can see that in 1793, the people that you found, the helpers in 1793 in Philadelphia, um, people like Richard Allen, leader of the first, uh, at the Mother Bethel African Church in Philadelphia. Benjamin Rush, even though he ultimately had the wrong picture, medically speaking, of what was causing the yellow fever he was one of the ones who tried to rally the medical community to come to solution. And the mayor of Philadelphia at the time as well, when the members of Congress left, the local government stayed. And I want to sort of just use that as the segue point here. I will um, stop the share and then um, do I need to return uh, control of the, of the screen to anyone at this point? If you can make Jason the host, I believe that would you could. Okay, so let me. Second, please.
okay? I believe I'm no longer the, the host now. help in history and seeing that people have gone through these moments and learned things from them and we can find some solace in the past and people have coped with these kinds of times. And then the other point, which I want to turn to um, as we have our discussion, which is really about the important role that history plays in helping us understand the past and grieve, but also in building a record that can be useful for people going, for people going forward. So with that, let me turn to the, um, we're just a couple minutes behind where we wanted to be, but I want to jump into this discussion. And let me put the que first question uh, to Adam, actually. And this is going to have to do with taking us into a discussion about uh, your county's experience. So I was talking about 1793, but let's talk about a influenza pandemic that's been very much in the news for the last three months, and that's the 1918 flu. Adam, would you be willing to talk to us a little bit about your county's experience with the 1918 pandemic? Sure, yes, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Thank you very much for your introductory comments. Um, I think that one of the best things that we can do today is to basically do what you were talking about earlier and try to look at other pandemics or epidemics that have occurred uh, either locally or nationally, and try to see what sense we can get from them. Um, and obviously, they're not, they're not really a blueprint for what to do, um, although to some extent, I think we can say that some of these events are a blueprint for what not to do. Uh, so maybe that's, maybe that's more my perspective spilling in. Uh, but what I'd like to start off first with talking about is um, – I think one of the things we had talked about before, Scott, was uh, the kind of resources that we have available at the History Center as far as the 1918-1919 uh, flu are concerned. And I I'm just jumping in with that before I go on to, to say that um, we surprisingly do not have a large archival collection, although it did affect the area pretty significantly, um, <clears throat> which I think is something I'd like to come back to. Uh, so that this time around, we don't do the same thing. Um, that we actually reach out and try to document this experience and reach out to um, individuals, to groups, to businesses, to uh, economic and business leaders, uh, to, to everyone, really. Um, people that are... through lectures, uh, through columns in the newspaper. And uh, one of these individuals in particular, his name is Jim McClure, and many people from York County will be familiar with his name. Um, until recently, he was the editor of the York Daily Record, and he has consistently written columns um, about York County history into the local paper. He also helps to uh, operate uh, a Facebook group called Retro York, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. Uh, but a lot of what I've pulled together today has come from his his work of trying to coalesce um, a lot of information. And fortunately, a lot of what happened in the pandemic of 1918-19 uh, ended up in the local paper. So we do know what happened, but I don't think we know everything that happened. Uh, so there are some there are still some questions that remain about it. Uh, the first thing I'd like to do is is read um, the text from a Facebook post that I put together a few weeks ago. Um, and 
one of the things that I'd like to say is that I think we have made this comparison between COVID-19 and the so-called Spanish flu uh, because there are a lot of interesting parallels. Uh, it's not, exact, not the same disease by any means, um, but the situation and certainly the, the size of the impact is comparable. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'd like to read the text of this uh, Facebook post, uh, which is kind of a summary of what happened locally. And then there are a few other points I'd like to make. Uh, and maybe we can have some more discussion about yeah, that. Sounds, sounds great. And, okay. and just at the stage, we're talking about 1918 and a global pandemic that uh, ended up killing 675,000 people in the United States. So Bring us into that. You're going to bring us into that story in, in the York perspective, right, Adam? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Um, so like the, and it's been called so many things, but uh, originally at the very beginning, it was, it was universally called the novel coronavirus. So like that, um, Spanish influenza shocked the nation when it struck. And the first reported case in York County was in October 1st of 1918 which is actually fairly late and had been affecting the rest of the world much earlier and had affected parts of the United States earlier than that. Uh, but, but York, the first documented case in York County was on October 1st. So just to give you some perspective, first case, October 1st, at the beginning of November, the number of confirmed cases was 4,300. Officials called off the York fair, turning the fairgrounds into an open air emergency hospital serviced by one lone city-owned ambulance. Entire families were infected, officials closed bars and public venues, and then the numbers started to fall. And when they fell in early November, many businesses reopened and huge crowds gathered across the country to celebrate another major event, the end of World War I and the United States and allied uh, victory in World War I. And then infections rose again in December and continued into the spring of 1919. Um, one of the interesting things about this is that we rely so much on the newspaper and if it's not in the paper, we don't have that much to work with, unfortunately. Um, and I know there's a lot of discussion right now about what the real numbers are in Pennsylvania, what the real numbers are nationwide, um, but they had a much worse problem during the pandemic of 1819 um, and people are really not that sure what the numbers are, what the hard numbers are, especially locally. Um, one of our local estimates is that there were 6,500 infected and 300 dead in York County. But once we get past 1918, once we get into January of 1919, and infections and deaths were still occurring, the newspapers did not cover it as much. And so it's you can get a, a perception that it stopped, but it didn't because we know uh, from obituaries that there were still people being infected and dying. Um, but the coverage was just simply not the same. So, uh, so anyway, I'll just go through those statistics again. And like I said, this is an unofficial estimate, but 6,500 infected and 300 dead in York County. Uh, so, and I'm sure you could talk about this as well, Scott, but uh, nationally, uh, this is, I think this is from the CDC where I got this, but 28% of the population was infected and 2.5% of the infected as well. Um, when Spanish flu struck in 1918, the United States was actively involved in uh, the largest war it had fought until that time, uh, which was World War I, or the First World War, or as they called it, the Great War, or the war to end all wars, which of course it wasn't. Uh, but it was, it basically... Uh, mobilized the country in a very short span of time to move a huge amount of men overseas to fight in France. And most people are familiar with that story. Uh, York County played a decisive role in that and ultimately met all of its recruiting quotas. Um, but the effect of Spanish flu was so severe that in addition to all of those various venues that were closed down to protect lives and, and stop the infection rate, uh, they actually ended the draft in York County. Um, and this is, you know, this is months before we had any idea that the war was going to end. In fact, most people thought the war would extend well into 1919. 
Uh, so this wasn't because we were ramping down from the war. Um, it was done because they thought that by continuing to bring large groups of young men together, um, the pandemic would severely affect them. Um, so that's one point. And in addition to the draft issue, that sure adam i i mean and such a um such a really rich story of that local experience which was absolutely devastating and compounded as you said at the end by the fact that that pandemic in 1918 was happening against the backdrop of of the great war uh, they didn't know they were going to need to serialize it at that time and this um, again, I hope it comes back to sort of one of those points I was trying to make at the beginning is that when you begin to ask what exactly is the pandemic, you find it's incredibly complicated as you start to pull the, the pieces apart. And as we're seeing that right now, of course, with the fact, as you said, that we're in, uh, you know, 14.7 unemployment, percent unemployment and economic recession we're moving into. It's really very hard to disentangle this economic disaster that we're in from this pandemic that we're in. I think, Silas, I want to use that as a way to come over to you and get a sense of how York County has has reacted in that economic sense. I know that there's been, for example, a retooling uh, there locally for some of the really important um, uh, products, PPE, that, are, that have been needed to support mm -hmm. essential workers and health workers at the front lines. Could you talk a little bit about that and then maybe more generally about York County as a kind of a place that reacts to disaster economically. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, the Economic Alliance, of course, because of our perspective, is focused on the economic impacts and commissioned some data even recently to look at what the impact has been. And it's uh, pretty dire. Now, it's different than some economic emergencies in that it could be this sort of um, very finite experience, uh, unlike a depression where maybe there's no clear end and it could linger for a decade. A lot of what we're seeing in the short term is driven by restrictions placed on businesses being open for public health issues, so for good reason. Um, and so we're seeing roughly half of the county's businesses currently closed right now. So think about the economic impact of having 50% of your businesses closed and then consider that uh, roughly 46% of our businesses in York County have five or fewer employees. So they tend to be very small businesses that have very little capital, uh, very limited credit lines. And so when they have an economic disruption like this, it uh, really imperils a lot of those small businesses. So I think the story that will be very different coming out of this economic experience is really the story of small business and how either our federal and state response truly supported those small businesses in getting through a short-term disruption and uh, surviving uh, and sort of outliving the predictions that we currently have of 20 to 30% of those small businesses failing in the period when uh, from roughly 1938 through uh, the Second World War, your county manufacturers retooled their production to produce you know, munitions and products for the home front and the war front. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, tempting to make that comparison because we're doing some of the same things now. Manufacturers that once produced components for, um, you know, telecommunications are now producing parts for respirators. People who made uh, ballet outfits are making face masks. Uh, people that made uh, gin and whiskey are making um, hand sanitizer. Right. So the retooling has happened, but I think the really impressive thing about in 20, the 2020 versus the 1938 story is in 1938, you had three years to change over production before the U.S. ever entered World War II. Um, it was sort of a predictable demand of you know, mounting war um, and the products were known. Uh, 
we've managed to shift our economy in three weeks to retool some of our manufacturers to produce critical products and their products in some cases that were highly regulated by the healthcare industry um, and trying to work in a totally disrupted supply chain rather than a supply chain back in 1938 that was mobilizing at a national level for defense production. So, um, you know, I think it's easy to sort of look back at the past and say, if only we could do what we did mm -hmm. in plan. Uh, in some ways, what we've done already in 2020 is, is more impressive than what we did in 1938 and in the years that followed because of the rapid turnaround and the dire context for it. Uh, Craig, I want to come to you in just a second, but I want to just get one quick follow-up with you, Silas, if I can. Really, it's for anybody there. Uh, you may have seen in today's Philadelphia Inquirer that there's um, three counties in Pennsylvania that have now, it, it's a little complicated when we say the county, but, but there are political leaders in these counties who have said that they will defy Governor Wolf's order uh, to remain closed and that they will reopen the county. I think the bigger picture here, of course, is that we are living in a moment, I don't want to say unprecedented, because as a historian, that's a dangerous word to use, but we haven't seen this kind of animus between localities and states and the federal government in the midst of a disaster. And really, I don't think we've ever seen it quite take this form. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly there's always tension. I mean, Hurricane Katrina shows us that, that you can expect that there will be tension. And sometimes it's quite it leads to terrible outcomes. But this is something um, we've never seen all 50 states reacting to a disaster simultaneously. And now what we're seeing, and Silas, this is kind of my question to you from mm -hmm. the economic perspective. You've given us a really nice snapshot of the local economic picture there. And that's different from Philadelphia County. So what are you anticipating? What kind of information do local business leaders need from Governor Wolf and vice versa? to achieve a sort of a reopening of the economy there that doesn't exacerbate these tensions. Things are gonna be tense. They have, that is just the way it is. But you know, in a democracy, we manage tension. That's part of what we specialize in, but we don't want it to boil over. What are you seeing there in that sense? I mean, the, the common theme that we always hear with business, whether you're talking about tariffs or taxes or a disruption like this is just the need for some kind of predictability and certainty. And I think we did have that. We had a severely constrained economy through last week, but I think the developments from Friday, Saturday, Sunday into today have caused uncertainty about where authority lies. Is you know policy set at a county level or a municipal level? Uh, does a county district attorney um, have the ability to not enforce laws or regulations that are put in place at a state level? Um, and do the state police then sort of enforce law at a local level over regional state, regional police departments? Uh, those are the kinds of questions that go well beyond uh, the ability of any individual business person to, to respond to. And so they're put in a situation where not only are they trying to comply with basic tactical things like installing sneeze guards and making right. their staff have masks and gloves, but also knowing whether the, you know, state inter, uh, insurance that doesn't do anybody good. And it certainly isn't, certainly isn't good from an economic perspective. Um, and so my hope would be that regardless of people's perspective, that the goal is to at least get to a point of clarity mm -hmm as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you know, the next couple of weeks are going to be incredibly chaotic and troublesome for pretty much anybody trying to do business in Pennsylvania. So Craig, we, in, in times like this, you know, I, I in part gave that 70, 1793 Philadelphia starter uh, because I wanted to talk with you about uh, public health and about, you know, the role of, of certainty and managing uncertainty in times like this. And that, that was certainly evident in Philadelphia, as was evident in 1918, as Adam discussed. Um, but also, I think maybe can you give us a, a bit of a picture of how COVID-19 is affecting the population there and maybe the kinds of disparities that you might be seeing? Because it seems to be a disease that um, it's it seems to affect older folks more, but it also seems to be manifesting itself in certain populations 
for example, I, I think there in York County, it seems to be hitting the Latino population harder per capita. Can you, can you talk us through those numbers a little bit and get us the sense of what's happening? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and so far we've heard some of those really astronomical numbers at a national level, state level, and then even some of the York County numbers. But before I really dive in, um, I'd like to, to start with some of the York City specific numbers. Um, so we've seen uh, up until earlier today, it was 274 positive <clears throat> cases, uh, just went up to 278 by the end of the day um, in the city of York. And that's 5.2 square miles um, with an uh, approximate 44,000 population. Now out of those 274 cases, we've seen 44 of those people hospitalized. That's 16% of our cases we're seeing end up in the hospital at some point. Um, we've also had four deaths within York City limits. That's one and a half percent of our cases. And while we always hear these really astronomical numbers, numbers which can be astounding, um, and as people have said, it, it starts to just, um, you know, gets a little blurry after a while or uh, numbers overload. For me, I'm so focused on the jurisdiction of York City that sometimes actually those smaller number, numbers that tell us what's going on our, in our municipality are what's astounding to me. Um, so out of those 274 cases, um, I know some of these numbers have ended up um, shared in the paper, uh, but as far as the Hispanic Latinx population, we've been seeing anywhere from 70 to 80% of our cases falling um, among that population. And they only make up about a third of the city's population. So this is really astounding. Um, we started to see uh, these numbers bear out pretty early on in the health crisis. Um, and as we relate that to um, you know, health disparities and health inequities, you know, the, the populations, the minority populations, Hispanic, Latinx population, as well as the Black or African American population, even under normal circumstances, we see health disparities and inequities um, become apparent with pretty much every health issue. And a lot of that, a lot of times that has to do with, um, you know, lack of access to healthcare services or a lack of culturally tailored um, health education programs for those populations. Yeah. And there's also a whole host of other factors, what in public health we often refer to as the social determinants of health. So things like income and job status, education, access to transportation, access to healthy foods and other needed uh, commodities and services. These things have such a profound impact on vulnerable populations under normal circumstances that clearly when we find ourselves in a pandemic or really any kind of a health crisis, these um, disparities are going to be exacerbated. Um, I think it's also really interesting to look at um, the effect that COVID-19 has had on some of these um, social issues that we see play out in other health, um, related to other health issues. So for example, we take housing issues. Um, we know that substandard housing can lead to a variety of poor health outcomes. Sometimes it relates to lead exposure or mold in the home or things like that. But now we're seeing issues with, um, you know, the number of people that reside in a household right. when we have multi-generational households. And so sometimes these factors really start to play out in a different way, but it's rooted in a previous issue. Um, so, it, it, yeah, like I said, it's really interesting to see how some of those things tend to play out. And so what we see with um, the Hispanic and Latinx population um, at least in our area, there's a higher likelihood that they're gonna be working in a warehouse or food production type of setting, which social distancing is just that much more difficult to implement in those settings. Um, we also know that some of those workers tend to be uh, filled by temp agencies. So job security is different among that population. So you might have folks that, um, you know, are really uh, worried about losing their job um, or losing that pay that they need. Um, so they may be more likely to go to those work sites. Um, and then when you pair that with the housing situation, you know, we've seen examples where um, 
where employees are uh, becoming infected, going home to their uh, multi-generational household that has higher than the average number of people living there. And you can just start to see how that can lead to, um, you know, higher rates of transmission among those communities. And the other interesting part is with a lot of pandemics and a lot of communicable diseases, you often see a, um, you often see social, cultural, um, and sometimes even religious practices that start to influence how that disease is being transmitted through communities. Um, so when you take a community that has really strong family ties, um, and when their loved ones are sick, they want to care for them, and that's how they show affection. Again, you can see how all of these factors combined um, really do uh, lead to uh, exacerbated health disparities. I want to make sure that we get some time for questions. Thank you for that, that Craig. I think it was a really in-depth discussion, um, and I give you much time to do it about um, what you're what you're facing there. One of the things I'm really struck by too in the, in each of your comments is the continuity. You know, this, again, it's a, it's a disaster where you can't uh, disentangle these different aspects of what we're talking about. The, the historical inheritance of the past, our ability to either document or we haven't documented certain of these um, risks or vulnerabilities in society. And that the vulnerability is, is cutting across racial class business sectors um, and it's, that's what makes these, the management of this kind of a, of a disaster so incredibly difficult, uh, which is that you can't just pick up one part of it. It's so interconnected. Should we turn to, uh, we have some time here. To, we have a couple of questions in. Um, just want to, let's see. I think there was one for you, Silas. I, wanna... I, was, I can go ahead and... Oh, Joan, and... you're going to do that. Sorry. I'll, I'll toss a few at you. How about sure. that? Great. Good. Um, <laughs> so I think what, just to follow on what you just said, um, one of the questions that surfaced was, you know, how much social turmoil um, occurred historically and how does that compare to today? Adam, do you want to take a... Uh, sure, yes. Um, in what I've looked at for York County, I have not encountered any outright um, acts of protest or rebellion against social distancing guidelines. Um, but I do think that there are parallels to today in the sense that people did not like, and I don't think people have ever historically, uh, especially in the United States where we have the tradition of personal liberty uh, in most cases, um, I don't think Americans have ever really enjoyed having their personal liberty suspended, uh, even for short periods of time. Uh, that being said, um, going back to the 1918 situation, um, for about a month, uh, the month of October through early November, things were pretty tightly locked down here. Um, and that did seem to have a positive effect as far as social distancing and, and what we call today, of course, flattening the curve. Um, what we know happened later uh, on November 11th of 1919, I'm sorry, 1918, is that the citizens of York and lots of people from outside the city came in and, um, uh, to the, to the tune of supposedly 100,000 people who congregated in the city of York uh, to celebrate the armistice uh, on November 16th. And apparently there were some 20,000 people who took, place, who took part in the parade itself. So uh, this is just really a few weeks after uh, a major pandemic had been announced and, and entire families were being infected, uh, members of multiple members of families were dying. Uh, so this is just weeks after that. Uh, so, you know, in comparison, um, last week was my eighth week of being locked down at home. Um, you know, so in that sense, what we're doing right now shows more of a commitment than what people did then, uh, in, in your county terms anyway. Um, so I can't, <clears throat> I can't say that I've seen evidence of, of those kinds of things locally. Although 
nationally, there were protest movements against wearing masks. Uh, there was a particularly violent situation that happened in San Francisco uh, where some people mailed uh, a bomb uh, to city officials in San Francisco to protest the mask requirement. Um, and shortly thereafter, the city decided to end the requirement and cases spiked. Uh, so, you know, as far as that question goes, um, it's, it's difficult to find evidence of this kind of, you know, angry protest, but people definitely didn't want to be socially distanced for very long. Just add one quick thing to that. I, I think in some ways the protests, and I think they're in general pretty small right now, um, at state houses to end the social distancing. I, to me, they feel almost like an extension of the protests against the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I think we're seeing a sort of a longer discussion in America about how people feel about health care and who they want telling them where they should get their, their health care. I think the overwhelming story here is one of social, um, pro-social behavior. And as Adam said, I mean, the idea that a good chunk of the world uh, would simultaneously go indoors and stay sheltered because public health officials told them to is something I, I have found it pretty astounding. So I think it's a lot more on the positive side of the ledger of how we're helping. But again, as Adam said, and I agree with this, I mean, if there's one thing we specialize in the United States more than anything else, it's speech. So let's have that speech, but let's have it done in a way that's um, not going to hurt people's, not going to hurt people's health. And I think overwhelmingly it's been mostly along those lines. Uh, so I asked Joan if I could ask a question of you, Scott. Um, so you've studied other disasters, and I'm wondering, you know, such as a nuclear meltdown, for example, or um, an earthquake or hurricane, how does a public health crisis like this one differ from other types of disaster? And I'm thinking because of the social interactions and how the social interactions are, in fact, the thing that keeps the pandemic going, um, does that change the nature of how America and or, or humans in general respond to incidents like this? One of the, I think it's a, thank you for that. That's a great question. Um, one of the things that it really strikes me is the speed at which disasters unfold uh, as a key factor. And so uh, this is one that we're literally in the, probably in the early stages of it. So one of the things we know about disaster when we study them historically is that there's this really strong um, desire to make sense of what's happening in the midst of it. If it's, if it's more of, a, of an event that takes place in a relatively concentrated time and place, then that sense-making, I mean, it may go on for a long time, but usually public officials make sense of it relatively quickly for people. I think one of the major challenges, aside from the reality of the disease and the people are suffering from it, is the ripples across society as we've been trying to make sense of how, what an appropriate reaction should be. I mean, even in our one-hour discussion here, we've talked about many different philosophies of what the appropriate reaction should be. That is quite unique from a sort of disaster history perspective. And I think it's, again, why you know, I want to underline the really great information Adam has given about 1918, and that sometimes that historical record is a little hard to figure out. People did take sheltering action, um, but also people were a little ambivalent about it. And then when the armistice hit, it was almost like, well, well let's, we're, that's, we're past that now. That was a different age in terms of keeping of epidemiology, public health statistics. Um, but there was a lot of sense-making going on in the midst of that pandemic too, that I think we can find in the, in the historical record. And that one was happening in the midst of a world war too. So um, I think that does set the pandemic apart um, from some of these things. And we're in early days. I mean, I don't, I don't say that with any enjoyment. Um, we're still very early in, in this in terms of probably we're going to come out of shelter and go back in. I should let Craig answer that, not me. But I think there's going to be multiple waves of this. You don't see that with a hurricane or a, um, a, an earthquake. The event happens and then there's a long aftermath. This is multiple disasters compounding upon themselves. I'm, I'm really Mr. Bad News here. I'm sorry about that, but um, 
Oh, well, maybe we can end this on a, a little more positive note. So um, the question was asked about visiting nurses association. They took a leading role in the response to the flu in 1918. Um, have they been involved in the current pandemic? And if so, how? So I, I'm trying to think here in the York area, um, I don't know that it would be the Visiting Nurses Association, but there has been um, definitely an identified need for things like medical reserves, uh, medical reserves corps, um, or working to recruit retired nurses um, to fulfill those gaps. So I think um, while it might not be the same institutions by name, um, there's definitely a coordinated effort to think outside the box to increase our capacity, um, specifically to do contact tracing. And while we're looking at more traditional um, uh, health careers and how they can be repurposed to fill this gap, um, there's also a lot of out-of-the-box out, out thinking right now, um, looking at community health worker models, um, and looking at all different kinds of skill sets that can be repurposed uh, to be able to conduct disease investigations, um, because that is one of our most um, fundamental tools in, in fighting a communicable disease outbreak. I think if, you know, even looking in the last week with the governor's announcement or, you know, vision for a um, sort of civilian core that would be uh, skilled up to do contact tracing and clearly drawing parallels to the CCC, um, you know, that one's going to be rich for interpretation if it does come to fruition, because I think it's so, so obviously uh, harkens back to, you know, New Deal policies, trying to put people back to work, but also provide a public service. Very good. Well, thank you all. I think we've gone a little bit over time. This is a very complex um, conversation and a complex topic. We probably could go on another half hour to an hour with some of the questions that we have um, listed here. They're pretty needy. Um, but I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I especially want to thank um, Dr. Knowles and our panelists um, for participating today, for giving us some historical perspective um, that we can compare or bring to the present. Um, on behalf of the York County History Center and the York County Economic Alliance, we thank you so very much for participating. Um, I would need to do just a tad bit of a commercial for those listening. Um, the York County History Center is um, doing a Share Your Story project. We would love to hear about your experience, all of your experiences, whether they're really difficult ones, um, trying to keep a business afloat, um, personal stories such as Dr. Knowles related at the very beginning or success stories, please go to our website, yorkhistorycenter.org. Under library, there's a share your story COVID-19 opportunity. Help us crowdsource this moment in history. Um, as Dr. Benz said early on, um, there are many stories that were missed in 1918. We hope to capture those now. So thank you for allowing me that little interview. Interlude. Have a great evening, everyone. Mm -hmm.